This Week in Startups is brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code TWIST to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. LinkedIn. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Go to linkedin.com slash twist and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. And Cabbage. Get the money you need to run your small business today. Go to cabbage.com to get started and use code TWIST to get a $100 credit on your first loan statement. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E.com and use promo code TWIST. Minimum loan of $5,000. We are really excited about our next guest. She's super busy. Um, she's lived through about three of the cycles, uh, like me, and she knows where the bodies are buried and um, how to make these companies uh, scale. She's seen it all, and she doesn't really need an introduction. Uh, please join me in welcoming Aileen Lee from Cowboy Ventures. Ah, so, you started in uh, venture capital, I think, through what was the traditional route, uh, which was going to business school back in the day. I know you went to MIT and then Harvard. Uh, so obviously there's some kind of slacker, I guess, coming up. Actually, you know, it's funny. I kind of was. Not like, I'm not trying to say like I'm, I just, I'm very lucky that like I think MIT had like a, a fluke in admissions that year where they were looking for people who were more well-rounded. <laughs> like they changed that policy after we graduated. What, what did you do at MIT? I actually was a Sloan undergrad. Ah. What does that mean? It's business, business plus Yeah, I mean, it's business. I, to be honest, like, I kind of, I grew up at a great public school in New Jersey. I never had met an engineer. Um, I, I'm a first-generation immigrant where, in my parents' minds, engineering meant civil engineering. Ah. And that was kind of a tough job. You would go work for a city or a utility, and that was their version of it. So they had, uh, and so I never had met an engineer. I didn't understand what it was. I think I kind of figured it out a little too late. But so, you wanted to be one. I, you know what? I was a real procrastinator. I did not have great executive function in high school. Um, and so I knew that if I went to liberal arts, I guess I knew enough about myself to know that if I went to liberal arts school, I would just keep on with my procrastinating ways for the rest of my life, just writing papers like last minute. Yeah. And if I went to a school that actually was like more homework based and problem set based, where you really can't learn it all like two days beforehand, that it would be like my boot camp and it would kind of get me out of my ways. And so, and I also, there, I had read an article. Uh, at the time, so I graduated from high school a long time ago, uh, where it was an article about scientific illiteracy and about how girls were being left behind mm -hmm. of the scientific revolution. That girls were being brought up to be less comfortable with numbers and less good at math, not because they had less innate capability, but kind of society was saying that boys are good at math and girls are not. And that really pissed me off. Yeah. Um, and I had been good at math, but never encouraged to pursue anything mm. in math and sciences. And so when I got into MIT, I was like, I'm fucking going. <laughs> so you got the, you had this observation at the age of 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of sad that basically that problem is still true. Like, we haven't fixed most of the things that people were writing about in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, but I, you know what? I read the memo from James Damore from Google, and he said this is <laughs> yes. just biological yes. differences. Yes. Uh, what did you think when you saw that memo? And I guess we're getting right into it, but yeah. it, it is uh, interesting. There, are, there is scientific evidence that the genders are different. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Um, but what did you think of that moment in time? So I, I kind of remember when I was in elementary school, we used to take these standardized tests, like the CTBS tests. I don't know if anyone here remembers like coloring little circles with pencils. And uh, apparently, I think when I was in fifth grade, I did the best in the math test. Huh. And I got called to the principal's office. And he wanted to know if I cheated. Uh. And so I kind of, I never really attributed that to gender bias. Right. I, I don't, I'd never gotten in trouble. I had just been like a regular kid and never been called to the principal's office. And he wanted to know like if my parents got me tutors or if maybe I had like cheated in some way. And I went back to class very sheepish and embarrassed that I'd been called to the, and I never thought twice about it. But now when I look back, I think yeah. that's like, that's how we grew up at the time. It's just this weird signaling like, this is maybe not for you. Yeah, right. Yeah, I got that too. I was like, I think I, I read an article that at Brown, you didn't have to have a major. You can make your own major up. And I was like, 
that sounds good to me. Yeah. Uh, and so I asked my uh, advisor in high school, I said, hey, what about Brown? And he literally laughed in my face. <laughs> he said, I, I think you should go to the police academy. That would be <laughs> better. He did not. No, literally he did. And I took the policeman's test. You did, so really? I, I took the police test and my brother went in. And then I said, you know what, I'll go to college at night, and then maybe I'll, I'll meet you on the other side after I get my degree. But I was going to be a cop. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy, right? Weird. Um, and uh, That's so cool. It is a little it's weird, a little yeah. known fact about you that I didn't know. Yeah, then I was going to go to the FBI. I went to, I was going to go we to We could John. use you right now. I would have been good. <laughs> I would. Well, I read Andrew McCabe's book. You read that book, Andrew McCabe's Mm-mm. book? It's really good. No. And I was like, yeah, that would have been the perfect job for me. So I was going to go to John Jay for criminal justice. That's cool. Um, and then be an FBI agent. And then the internet happened. When did you first become aware of the internet? You know, I was a little bit of a late adopter. So when I graduated from business school in 1997, uh, one of the we had these study groups that would meet before class and go over the cases uh, and kind of divide and conquer to make sure we were prepared. And one of the guys, when we were graduating, we had like a final, you know, we would meet in the mornings a couple times a week. And one of the guys was going to this dot-com startup that was going to sell books on the internet. And I totally remember like saying goodbye to my friend Brian when we were graduating. I'm like, hey, good luck with that book thing. <laughs> so he went to Amazon. Um, and another one of my study group mates went to Netscape. And uh, I just, and then I moved to San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco for Gap for, I thought I might want to, I, I loved consumer businesses, and especially consumer businesses I thought made really great quality products and didn't really have to rely on paid marketing to build customer love. Just like, you know, building true brands and, and loyal brands. I was really fascinated by that. And so I went to go work at Gap and living in San Francisco at the time in 98, uh, 99, especially leading up to the dot-com boom, like, I thought the internet people were super annoying. Uh, you know, they you were. would go to a cafe, and some of you, if you're from out of town, you might find this when you go to a coffee shop now. Like, everyone's talking about, like, hey, I'm in biz dev at Yahoo, and it just yeah. was super annoying. So I kind of was trying to stay away from those people. Uh, they're kind of like the crypto people today. Where <laughs> Maybe, they're, yeah. yeah. The yeah. dot-com people, because they're kind of yeah. like... I. Whatever you're doing, it's not as important as what's happening in crypto. Yeah, maybe. And yeah, you're like, I'm yes. Not so sure about that. I'm, I'm curing cancer. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but not on the immutable blockchain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. That's what the internet, the dot com people were like in San Francisco in like 98, 99. And so, uh, but then, uh, I was chief of staff to the CEO at Gap, and then if you, after you survive your tour of duty, you can kind of pick a job. And the internet job was the most exciting place to be at Gap at the time in 99, because it was a tiny team of five people. We had just put up our first website, uh, and we were trying to figure out like this new internal business. And it was a real fight about whether the internet was going to be a fad or not. Uh, and so we were under-resourced. It really wasn't in-house startup, so I went there, and I kind of became like the front-end marketing manager, biz dev person, product manager for... The website yeah. manager. Yeah, yeah. It was like, websites were kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like a billboard or a business card or a catalog. Well, like, we, that was yeah. the metaphor people were using. Nobody ever really thought, like, what about selling the clothes on it? Oh, we had, I mean, we were selling the clothes, but even just building the processes in terms of, like, do we just set it up in our internal systems like a different store or do we set up a different system? We had to build, uh, like, a, 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 there was no one who actually was fulfilling this stuff. So do we go pick a new warehouse, build a new warehouse to be our, like, internet distribution center? Or do we try and do it out of existing warehouses that basically had no technology whatsoever? Do we make, do we buy different merchandise? Like, is it a place where you could buy a winter coat all year long? Or do we only sell the stuff that stores are selling? There was just so many. And then also we had no one's email address. And most people were afraid of putting their credit card on the internet. So it was a totally different time. It really is worth taking a pause there because people don't realize at that time people thought the internet was a fad that was going to crash. Yeah, that right. It, it couldn't possibly stay up because nobody was in charge of it. And there were cover stories on the New York Times that said people unlikely, 78% of people unlikely to put credit card yep. in the internet website. Exactly. And now today people are like, yeah, absolutely. I've got all 12 credit cards. Yeah, in fact, stored. I'll let the internet save my credit card. I won't even know the number. Yeah. You're just like, yeah, fine. Whatever. Yeah. If you, I can always cancel or return it. Yeah. All these problems got solved. You wound up working for Mary Meeker somehow when she was at Morgan Stanley, correct? Uh, well, when I was, I was an analyst at Morgan Stanley after ah. college. And Mary Meeker, even then, was like this world-class, famous research analyst. Yeah. What yeah. makes her so special over this, like, we're talking about 
almost close to three decades of her being mm -hmm. one of the most respected voices. What was it, even at that early time? You know, I time? think, um, and it's very relevant for the venture job, which we both are now, or all of us are, is that um, the willingness to have conviction and also standing up for what you think when no one else thinks it. Uh, you know, and I think, um, you know, she was very uh, bullish on Amazon when a lot of people were writing about Amazon.bomb. And, like, literally, there were more than one point in history when people thought Amazon was going out of, it was the we work of our time, of, their, of that time, that it was going out of business. They were spending so much money and they were losing so much money, there was no way it was going to be a sustainable business. Literally, this happened a couple different times. Yeah. And Mary just said, no, I, I, like, I believe in this in the long term and here's why. And she was, like, the only one. I know you want to turn your idea into a beautiful website. You want to start a company. You want to start a project. Maybe you want to blog or maybe publish some content. Maybe you want to sell a product or even a service. Maybe you want to promote your physical or online business. Well, Squarespace is the answer. You know this. I use it. You use it. We all love it. Why do we love it? Because it provides beautiful, customizable templates and such powerful e-commerce functionality. And you know, you put those two things together and wow, that is catalytic. Uh, and you can buy domains there, of course, from over 200 extensions. So you find a great name for your business. You put up a beautiful website from all those gorgeous, responsive templates that work on iPad, phone, desktop, wide desktop, you know, narrow desktops. It just works. And you get a great domain name with it. You get great analytics. You get the search engine optimization, free and secure hosting, and 24 by 7 award-winning customer support. Here's Presh making a, a new website for us, superhumanwallpaper.com. I asked him to make an example website as fast and as beautifully as he could, and look what he did. He browsed the templates, he selected a beautiful photography template, and he creates an active website within minutes. Here it is, superhumanwallpaper.com, a site to showcase superhuman inbox zero images. Very clever, Presh. Okay, here's what you need to do. You think beautiful website, with great functionality and great support, I want you to just think Squarespace. So go to squarespace.com and get a free trial right now. And when you're ready to launch your website, you just use the offer code TWIST and you get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Please don't forget to use TWIST, T-W-I-S-T, when you launch your website. Okay, thanks again to Squarespace for being one of our longest-running partners on This Week in Startups. It really means a lot to me. The company's done amazing. It's been great to grow alongside of you uh, and the whole team over there. So thanks again, Squarespace. All right, let's get back to this amazing episode. It is fascinating. What do you think everybody got so wrong about the Amazon story and then what are people getting right or wrong, since, since we went there already, right. about the WeWork collapse that occurred over the last, it feels like, three weeks? Yeah. I mean, wow. Um, you know, it's interesting. It's a confusing time because on the one hand, you know, that saying like software is eating the world. I do believe that, and there are people who say like every technology is going to be, every company will be a technology company in some form, right? And I think that's true. And so, but now I think the pundits are saying, well, WeWork was never a technology company, right? It shouldn't have. No, I think from a margin perspective, that's definitely true, right? And so, you know, how companies get funded in terms of multiples, multiples on revenue, multiples on gross margin, multiples on EBITDA, like a lot of companies that don't have the margin structure of software companies are being like evaluated and invested in like they have the margin structure of software companies. Um, and I think, uh, that is, I think, maybe one of the lessons learned that all companies that leverage technology are not the same. Uh, and if and when there are bumps in the road, and we you mentioned cycles, Jason, right? Yeah. Like that there are, you know, look, people have been, it's been a bull market for a pretty long time. Yeah, now we're 11 years. Like and uh, I, yeah, I, it's just not possible that it's going to stay, that there's going to be so much private money valuing companies at the rate that they have been for another five years. So I don't, I can't say, I don't think anyone can say when it's going to change, if it's going to be a year from now or four years from now, but uh, things will get tighter at some point where it's hard, it's already hard to raise money for certain types of businesses and certain types of people, uh, but it will get harder for everyone and also multiples will contract. Let, let's take apart the WeWork um, ride up for a second. It's very easy to kind of dance around like as it's tripping and falling and stumbling down the stairs like haha -ha, like all these mistakes but there was also this you know incredible uh, run they had what was it that people were so attracted to there um, in terms of it's 
an office suite company, but people seem to suspend disbelief that it was something more than an office suite company. I think there's a couple things. Um, one is that we're actually in between major tech trends right now. Right? Like social was a big important tech trend that made, uh, made it much easier to market to consumers than it had been in the past, uh, and, and even businesses. Uh, and then cloud and SaaS and mobile basically created this amazing window of opportunity for new companies to dislodge incumbents or create new categories. But all of those trends are actually 10 or 15 years old. Uh, and, and a lot of those categories have quite a few competitors already. And so, to be honest, like investors raise money, and a lot of them have an incentive to deploy it. Uh, and they're always looking for the new hotness, right? The new hotness is scooters. The new hotness is real estate. The new hotness is like, you know, all that retech, which is like real estate technology. And I do think that this whole combination of like somewhat like technology facilitated uh, community bundled with real estate became this category that people were flocking to, partially because there aren't that many other places to deploy that much capital, ah. or there haven't been in the past couple years. So a I think capital that's one oversupply can lead to weird behaviors. I think so. And the other thing is also, um, we work, how many of you have been to a week work, we worked, or passed by a we work, or had a friend working in a we work, right? It's pretty unusual for like when you have a product that people use, right? You go to a farmer's market and you see a square and you see a merchant selling honey using that dongle. You, it's, it's a visceral reaction. You, you, it's a proximal experience. You can understand how it's changing the life of the person selling honey yeah. or it's changing the life of the person who wants to buy the honey and had to pay cash before, right? So like those kinds of... And like WeWork has physical locations that people actually go to and can see. And so it makes... Also for investors and consumers, it makes it seem way more accessible and uh. than I think... A soft, like a piece of software that none of us will ever use. Yeah, I think Sachs calls it real, David Sachs from Crafts calls it real world virality. Mm -hmm. So his, his concept was, well, if you're looking at, you know, if you, the way most of us found out about Uber was somebody ordered an Uber and we jumped in it with them. We're like, oh, you have a driver? And it's like, I have my own personal driver right, yeah. in an app, yes. you know, and it sort of spread that way. And, and we yeah. work was like that. It's like, totally. where am I? What is this? This is cool. Yeah. What happens to something like WeWork? If there's too many desks available in the world yep. and, you know, people charge a lower price. Well, I mean, I think it's harder. You mean competitors? A competitor right? or, like, it seems to me that they're this third party between the, real, the owners of the real estate and the consumers mm -hmm. of it. They've inserted themselves. And isn't the idea behind the Internet is to remove that kind of friction? Well, you know, it's also interesting because uh, we have been in the past – five to ten years also in this like war chest strategy period of time. Define what that means, where war chest strategy, yeah. You and generally the, the market and investors are rewarding growth. Right? They would rather for not necessarily a sane reason invest in a business growing twenty percent month over month than a company growing ten percent month over month. Right? Even if the company growing twenty percent a month is burning two X the capital of the former company of the other company or even more like the market has really been rewarding growth. And so they will invest at high prices in the company that's growing the fastest or seems to have the most momentum and traction. But then that company has more money than everyone else, right? So they can afford to burn more. They can afford to acquire more customers, right? They can afford to expand faster. And so they can kind and then other people are afraid of investing in the other people, in the other companies that are Which feels like the, the Uber Lyft dynamic. Almost. Yeah, so it's actually kind of interesting that Lyft yeah. actually wound up catching up in some cases, in some yeah. markets, because they had such a disadvantage capital-wise for so long. Yeah. Um, but that has, like, that has been the strategy of a lot of the companies playing in like, the big leagues money game, is like, you know... And it's a winning strategy, Move fast it? and break things, raise a shit ton of cash, and then you can outspend and outlive everyone else in the market. And so I think it'll be interesting to see if the performance of these companies in the public markets yeah. and what's happened to WeWork, if that changes the game at all. Yeah. And it seemed to be a winning strategy. Is it illogical as a founder in an environment where, okay, there's piles of money around, you've got three people going for a trillion-dollar market, whether it's transportation or, you know, lodging or some enterprise software. It seems like the logical thing to do, it's almost like a prisoner's dilemma, is, well, I will take the money, and I will give those investors what they want, growth at all costs, and then we'll figure out later how to get the unit economics right. It almost seems like the logical decision in the moment. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a high-stakes game, right? It's a little, it becomes a little bit of a shoot-the-moon strategy, 
Um, and I think for the employees who work at those kinds of companies and the founders, right, it is important um, to understand the risk that you're taking. Because, uh, you know, for investors like us or the VCs that you may talk to, they may be encouraging founders to shoot the moon because that company is one of 30 companies that that fund is invested in. And they just need three or four of the companies in that fund to be successful. It doesn't actually have to be yours. Uh, and I think that's really important when you're getting pressure from if you have a board of directors or you have if you take on a lot of money or you're thinking about taking a lot of money. Like the downside is that it can cause you to create this like addiction to potentially unsustainable sustainable growth. Mm. Uh, and, and I also think there are plenty of companies like PagerDuty or Datadog or other companies that have gone public and kind of done it up. Like, look, they're still growing incredibly fast yeah. or Zoom, right? Um, and they have great growth rate, but they've kind of done it a little bit more like one foot in front of the other they're like slow and steady, just grow in a sustainable yeah. way. And I think those companies are great examples. Yeah. The slow and steady mm-hmm. versus, uh, let's call it, war chest strategy. Right. Yeah. When do you know which one to pursue? Uh, or is it all situational? Ah, gosh. I mean, I think some of it has. I don't think, um, obviously, there, are, there can be winners and looters, losers in both categories. Yeah. Um, I some of it comes down to personality, I think, uh, do right? You want to your DNA and like how you want to run your business. Yeah. Um, and some of it also depends on the investors that if you have choices that you choose and that mm. you have an agreement of how you want to build your company. Uh, I was just uh, talking earlier today with an executive at one of our portfolio companies that's in a category that has lots of war chest players. And we're growing well, but we're definitely like just slow and steady up and to the right. And I, we do talk a little bit about whether that makes it seem like we're playing checkers and everyone else is playing chess, right? Because those people are raising a lot of money and they're getting very sharky. And the founders are very secure with, obviously, yes, we have to know, like we don't want to be playing checkers when everyone else is playing chess, but we have great product market fit. Our customers love us. We are not going to let ourselves get distracted by all this noise in the market. Because our product is differentiated, and we are just going to stay true to who we are. And if we try and pretend that we are something or we are people we are not, that's how we're sure we will lose. Right. So you have to play the game that you want to come to work every day and yeah. play. Yeah. Um, what did you think when we saw Masayoshi-san come into the market and start giving these incredible valuations? Mm-hmm. I was a beneficiary of that, obviously. I sold him a big chunk of my Uber, um, and that was my own personal like IPO. Congratulations. Uh, for a lot of people, that worked out nice. okay. Well, and I was like, well, I think this is great. Like, if he's going to come into the market. But I did have big reservations. I think Jason just said that the next time we do this, we're going to be on Calcanus Island. Yeah, and <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, we'll see. I think it's trading at like 30 bucks right now. So. You already sold yours. Yeah, I, I sold a big, big chunk, okay. but not, I still have most of it. Okay. <laughs> um, but my point was, you know, like sort of, when we saw that big money, like Yuri Milner, when he came into the market, it was like, whoa, this guy's putting $100 million. And we were all in shock. I know. Then this next guy comes in and he's like, a million, $100 million, $200 million. How about $2 billion? How about $15 billion? And you're like, what? That seemed crazy. What we should take on that um, obviously, I think one. I'm looking at your cast of characters here on the uh, logo slide. I think one. only one yes. brand listed, mm-hmm. and that's probably the one that's had the most problems or challenges in your portfolio. Correct. So, whether it's SoftBank or someone else, yeah. If someone offers you the next round and the next round's money and price, you do have to know that there are, you know, there's some attractiveness, like to the war chest strategy conversation that we just had. Uh, to that, right, which is having, if you're building a business that's going to be very capital intensive, it can be really nice to not to know that you don't have the distraction of the next two rounds, and you also have someone who has deep pockets who can keep backstopping you. But you also have to know that you are signing up to, like, there's not a lot of other people who are going to help you or who are going to backstop you when that person is in, involved in your company. And so it does definitely, it limits your degrees of freedom. Uh, and so you have to be very cognizant of the deal, like, Am I doing a deal with the devil or not? Yeah. Yeah. And the, in the case of Uber, I think it was a catalytic event because it ensured that Masayoshi-san didn't invest in Lyft. So back to that prisoner's dilemma, yep. my advice when that was all going down was take Masa's money. Let's not over-negotiate. 
let's get him on the cap table mm-hmm. because if we all dilute 12% or whatever he winds up buying, mm-hmm. isn't the company worth 25% more? And didn't we backstop against Lyft, you know, uh, encroaching on it? It seemed like the perfect move. Um, with Brandless, they put in 100 million or 200 million. It was a total disaster. They didn't put in the second 200. Well, I'm not going to comment on it. Okay. <laughs> Active litigation. But I, no, think I mean, it's our a, mutual friend Tina great, Sharkey. It's uh, a great brand, an amazing I product. I think she's an incredible visionary. But she's not there anymore. She's still really involved. Oh, she's still really yes, involved. Still okay. Involved, yeah. I wasn't sure. I, I ordered Brandless, and like, it's an incredible product. Yes. Like, you just don't have to think. You just order stuff, and it's amazing. Yes. It's super challenging, though. I, on the human rights level, I know it's important to you. It's important to me. And my first job was at Amnesty International. You uh, really? founded all right. I know it's surprising. I know since you think like I'm a, a Trump-like uh, No, no, no. I was just Republican. saying that I, I'm a libertarian. I said that if he, it's like when I saw Jason in the green room, I was like, wow, you look good. Like you're, uh, you could be going on a Republican debate stage right now. MayorJason.com. Uh, I have the domain name. Um, so when... <laughs> You keep getting me off my game, Aileen. Sorry. Right as I try to get the question in there. You should do your Trump impression. No, I can't. I can't do it. Don't encourage (laughs) me because it's such a great impression. It's tremendous, obviously, but I don't want to trigger anybody. It's so good. Um, Just a little more. A little more. Do you want a little more? No, 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 no. No more, no more, no more. Hiring is not as easy as just putting an ad on some message board somewhere and hoping for the best. No, that's not how you do it. That's not how you do it right in 2019. No, you want to use LinkedIn. If you're growing your business, you need to reach the right candidates at the right time. And 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make those connections and learn and grow as professionals. You know that. They also go there. Sometimes they want to discover new job opportunities. In fact, a new hire is made every eight seconds on LinkedIn. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Somebody just got hired on LinkedIn. That's right. And here is my CMO, Presh, who we just upgraded to an associate. He's in the game. And here he is posting a job for us, a customer success person, manager in Toronto. Here's the job function, a little business development, a little customer service. He takes our uh, nice little job description, pops it in there. Look at that WYSIWYG editor. looks great. Does a preview of the job, and he's ready to go. But that's not all he's going to do here. He's going to pick that he wants them to have customer service experience for two years. And he's going to post that job, and it's going to show that job to the right people at the right time. He did that in seconds. And here's the good news. I'm going to give you $50 right now, a 50, a 5-0 from your boy, J-Cal. Go to linkedin.com slash twist, linkedin.com slash twist, and get that 50 right now. Terms and conditions, of course, apply because it's 50 bucks. So go ahead and get it, linkedin.com slash twist. And thank you to LinkedIn for supporting the show. I do appreciate it. Let's get back to this amazing episode. What were we talking about? Startups. Brandless, I was like trying to go in for the brandless comment. Maybe we get a tweet out of it. And you're just totally outmaneuvered me on that one. The chessboard is now reset. Um, MaryJason.com, thank you. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about Dollar Shave Club. How did you get involved in that one? Oh, I got super lucky. Actually, I, I met with them when I was at Kleiner, but I, um, and so it was probably my last investment at Kleiner. And Peter Pham from Science had been yep. working with Michael, and uh, they Michael had access to razors, and he had written, started, directed in, and starred in a video. Yeah. And so uh, I met with them. They told me the idea about reinventing the medicine cabinet for men, and what a kind of like a lame experience it is if you're a man buying razors and go, having to go to Walgreens or CVS or Dwayne Reed and like ask a grumpy clerk if you can find them for the keys to the cage to open the cage. Yeah, and, and you can't look at anything because you're a criminal if you look at razors. <laughs> you're like, that really? That's how well, no, I mean, they keep it behind the yeah. camera so if you're like, want to compare, yeah, exactly. ju- they yeah. don't even, you know. They like, make it really, and so he yeah. was saying, you know, there's so much margin in there. If we can sell direct to customers, we can give them better product at a better price and I want people to smile and laugh when they get our package. I want them to be happy. It's like so many brands have the same packaging and the same design and the same marketing that they've had since 1970. And the customer has changed. Uh, and that's my dream is to basically reinvent all these products for men. Uh, and the first one's going to be Razor. So, and, and that was it. It was the video. And I saw the video and I was like, I'm in. It was so great. I feel so lucky that I got to work with that team. You saw the video was so well crafted that you said, 
the business of selling razor blades versus enterprise software or Airbnb yeah. or whatever, yeah. I'm in. Yeah. I just have that right, correct? Yeah. Because like, so most people would look at the, the business of selling razors as dumb. Like, you're selling <laughs> razors. You. Isn't that like, really? Yeah. Well, I think he had a vision for the category, right? Ah. And the category is huge. But even the razor business alone is quite large. Right. Um, and I actually, to be honest, like Michael is such a creative genius and such a, and he had like, he had done digital marketing uh, before starting Dollar Shave Club. And when you think about, like when you think about building a business, regardless of whether you're enterprise or consumer, you have to think about what are the biggest risks and who's on my team and is it my skill set or my co-founder's skill set that is going to help address the biggest risk. And for if you're trying to build a new digital native brand, the biggest risk is generally customer acquisition, right? And it's, can I build a brand that's going to be compelling and resonate with the modern consumer? And the biggest risk was addressed by Michael. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of, it made me feel a lot better that he had the skill set to actually, he had a feeling for the brand that he wanted to build and the voice and the look and the feel. Like a lot of the other stuff, we can basically hire great logistics people and fulfillment people and finance people. Um, but that was the, I think, the opportunity. Yeah, I missed it. He literally chased me into a parking lot after a speaking gig and was like, I'm going to sell razors on the internet before he had the video. And I was like, that's great. Yeah. And I'm like walking backwards towards my car. <laughs> and, <I'm> like, <laughs> and he's like, it's, the patents are no longer uh, a, a valid for the, for the triple. Do you use the triple? And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm not sure which one I use, but that's, that's great, kid. <laughs> and he's like, I want you to be my first investor. And I was like, let me um, tell you something. Like, I, I invest in companies that are like technology companies. Razors are never going to be like a technology company. You should find a better idea. Like, this is not going to work. And he's like, no, but I'm going to market. I was like, listen, kid, find a better idea than razors. Hopefully that's heartening for all of you founders out there, which is like you don't have to make every investor want to invest in your company. You just have to find like one or two of the right ones. And that it's funny. I've been working on this blog post about batting average and about like, you know, hitting percentage because like the ecosystem of tech, especially if you hang out with a lot of founders, there, there can be a culture of like of, oh, fucking crushing it, or like, oh, killing it, yeah. or I'm so oversubscribed, or like, oh, yeah, their numbers are insane. And it makes you she feel... She does a pretty good bra. It's <laughs> pretty good bra. <laughs> Thank you. Very good bra. Who wants to hear her do Trump more bra? <laughs> okay. If you do bra for the rest of the fireside, I'll do Trump for the rest of the fireside, bra. <laughs> okay. Tremendous. <laughs> so good. It sounds like a great company, Razors. Okay. <laughs> Huge. Tell I can't me more. Draw that much. Um, but it can make you feel like everyone's batting a thousand, right? Everyone's fucking killing it. And they're not. Nobody is. Investors, if we're lucky, we're batting 300, right? And the same thing with you all in your experiences at startups. Like, you're going to make bad hires. You're going to miss quarters. You're going to ship a feature that you thought was going to be huge and it flops. Like, that is the startup journey. No one is ever batting a thousand. Don't ever let yourself feel like that is true. Some people have hit a thousand, okay? <laughs> Just saying, America's winning three years in a row. So yeah. much winning. So, so much, much winning. winning. Um, it is true about so much winning. Um, is it true as an investor that if everybody understands the idea, there's probably not an opportunity? Hmm. It's kind of towards the Peter Thiel, like, what do you believe that other people don't? Do you buy into that, like, if everybody understood that razors could be shipped for 50 cents in an envelope and that consumers would subscribe to something like that, that was the thing, that was another amazing innovation that people didn't realize was that sending razors was not like sending a box of shoes. I mean, you're sending like an envelope, yeah. tiny, for, and because you're sending five at a time, it's not time sensitive. Yeah. I think it's not so much understanding, especially for consumer stuff. So we do about a third consumer investing and two-thirds enterprise software. And even in the enterprise software world, there's a lot of business processes that people just understand. Right? Like you can put yourself into the position of the guy who or girl who's going to have to do something on the spreadsheet or who uses old mainframe looking software from 1990 and like what their business process is to check people in an airport or just you know the things that are kind of like done by business people in businesses. It's more how you do it. 
that has to be unique or different, right? You have to have a unique insight into an industry or a business process or have a technology twist that actually does it much more efficiently or more delightfully or more cost effectively. And I think it's more the special sauces in the how, because a lot of markets today are understood by a lot of people. Like even, you know, logistics, like containers and the fact that there's a lot of containers that go around half empty. Like a lot of investors understand that, right? It's the question is like, how do you solve the problem? Let's go back uh, and look at these last two cycles. You started working at Kleiner in 99, is that uh -huh. right? I know. How did you get so that job? So much plastic surgery. No, yeah, just kidding. you look great. Um, 99, you got the gig. Uh -huh. What was the first gig? Were you an associate, a oh, principal? Oh, yeah, I was an associate. I was an associate dedicated gig? to John Doerr. Okay. So I spent the first three or four years working pretty much exclusively with John Doerr, uh, who was like, our main rainmaker. And what's so great about John, among many things was, I think I only got hired in part because we had never had a woman on the investing team before, and he felt like it was time to do so. Um, and so he, I think he really stuck his neck out in hiring me um, for that role. And he also worked on both consumer and enterprise, so I got exposed to both, which was great. And I also carried his bag to conferences and meetings. Sometimes I sat like on the couch in front of the Amazon board meetings because I couldn't go in, but a lot of times I got to go in. And back then, a lot of Series A firms spit split, they split deals. So we would co-invest with Excel or Benchmark or Sequoia. And so when I got to go to board meetings, I got to see the best partners in the industry working together on portfolio companies, which was amazing learning. And you were the only woman in the building at that time? Pretty much almost always, pretty much always. What was oh, and, it, and all meetings and board meetings for and sure. All what yeah. was it like at that time to be the only woman in the building? Yeah. Um, I definitely saw things that I wish I could unsee. <laughs> Um, people said things to me, which I, I'm hoping that they wish they could unsay. Um, it was not a super woke time, and I'm like I'm optimistic that it's better, and that we're all much more sensitive to both um, how people are treated, but also that it's an asset to a company, especially if you have to hire in this kind of environment. That if you are only hiring one type of person, you're putting your company at risk, and you're also making it really hard to hire. How did you feel when the whole Ellen Powell Kleiner thing went down having, this is the thing that I've always heard in the back channel of, well, Kleiner was the most open to having women of all firms, and then they're the firm that uh, allegedly, or according to the suit, like were the worst towards women. How do you reconcile that? Is John Doerr well, I don't a know horrible we, human being or a great no, no, human being? No, I would being? say things, a lot of things I experienced were in the industry. Not necessarily right. at Kleiner, but um, I don't know because so many, like so many, 70, today in 2019, 75% of venture firms still do not have a single woman on their investment team. 75, I, like I think about, like imagine if you were going to college or you were saying, thinking about sending your child to college and you were thinking about sending them to a school where they had not a single female professor. Would you want to send your kid to that school? I, that would seem like a completely ass-backwards school. Well, that is the University of Venture Capital right now. Why is it taking so long? Is it because the funds, I guess, get formed every four or five years? They're generally, they're all, they're all private funds, right? So they don't have public stakeholders to pressure them. Um, they're very small, so, uh, and they're, they're private partnerships. So I think a lot of it also is, like one of the things that I often ask my friend, male friends in VC is like, look at your calendar for the past quarter. How many professional female or non-white friends do you have? How often do you grab a coffee or a ketchup or touch base with someone who is not like a white male like you are? Most of them don't have friends that are not white males. And so of course, it's going to be really hard for them to recruit someone who, when their personal networks, and they totally rely on their personal networks and also what they call muscle memory, um, to hire people that are like them. So that's something that we're, I think a lot of people are trying to change. A lot of people in the past two years have hired women to their teams for the first time. And I, like at All Raise, which you mentioned, which is a nonprofit trying to accelerate um, success for people of all kinds, but in particular for women in the tech ecosystem, we are all about helping people like join the, the like modern society in the future. We're not about shaming people for the past. Like obviously we made a lot of mistakes in the tech industry, both on the kind of startup side and on the venture side. And we like we can fix them if we team up together and help each other do it. Managing inventory, covering payroll, and doing a hundred other things before you launch is just the average day when you own a small business. You know this. Your time is valuable and getting the money you need shouldn't take up all your time. That's why Cabbage 
has created a simple, modern way for businesses to access up to $250,000 in a line of credit. Cabbage has already provided funding to over 200,000 customers. And Sam, our president here at Launch, used Cabbage to pay employees over the holidays when a customer was late paying their invoice. Cabbage's application process is online, and it takes just a few minutes to complete, and then you get your decision. If your business qualifies, you can access the amount you need right away and withdraw more funds whenever you need them. And Cabbage has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and they have provided over 200,000 small businesses with access to funding. So that tells you something. So here is your call to action. You're going to get the money you need to run your small business today by going to cabbage.com and using the promo code TWIST, T-W-I-S-T, to get a $100 credit on your first loan statement. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E.com and use the promo code TWIST. Important disclaimer, you must take a minimum $5,000 loan to qualify for that $100 credit on your first loan statement. And of course, credit lines are subject to review and change. Individual requests for capital are separate installment loans issued by Celtic Bank, member FDIC. It seems like the quickest path to change since these funds have whatever cycles and they're very tiny and it tends to be like three people who went to college together or something Mm -hmm. uh, who worked together at their last company when they formed one of these uh, circles is to start your own firm. When did you decide to start Cowboy and how hard was that? What was the year? So I started in 2012. Um, I fortunately had done a couple years of being a venture-backed CEO when I was at Kleiner. I took two years kind of off, and I ran one of our portfolio companies. And so, and it was an ad tech company that had to sell basically ads on our network. And so I, I spent a bunch of time selling. And, and I learned uh, through a painful experience that a lot of times when you have sales reps, it seems like they're having meetings and they're reporting on progress, but you, and then they, those accounts never close. Uh, and so when I was going into this fundraise for my first fund at Cowboy, I didn't want to just like kind of um, deceive myself into having a lot of meetings with LPs that were never going to close. Uh, and so I kind of realized I had to have like a kind of like an account-based marketing strategy <laughs> um, and just really target folks who had invested in seed funds before, like they were already in first round or uh, Steve uh, Anderson's fund or Michael Deering's fund, or they knew what they were and they had missed it and they regretted it. And they had like an open to buy for next generation man- managers because they didn't want to mess- miss the next wave. So I phone screened everyone. Um, and if they didn't know what seed was or they didn't, like they couldn't have that conversation, then I was like, it's so great to meet you. Let's talk in a couple years. Uh, and so it was like helpful that I had done that job before because I think I was able to hopefully be um, somewhat targeted in the fundraise. But there are definitely t- lots of people who rejected me, and it's very personal because all of Cowboy Ventures was me. Uh, and so I spent just an intense number of months having lots of effectively sales meetings. And because you don't have a business unless you actually can raise the money. Uh, and so uh, I was fortunate to have some folks who really took the leap on me because m- most of them had actually ne- also never invested in a female funded fund, a single GP fund. Um, and I'm glad th- that I'm in business. It's gotten easier to raise money. You did your third fund, 95 right. million, I think, somewhere yep. around that range. Mm-hmm. Was it easier with the third one, or is it still a struggle to do 20 right. meetings to get, or 30 yeah. meetings to get one yes? Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're fortunate because we don't have a ton of investors in our fund, and it's been pretty much the same, what we call LPs, limited partners, since fund one. So not a lot has changed. Uh, so that's been nice. Uh, so no desire to go out there and raise the $500 million fund, or do you look at it and go, you know, I see people maybe without 20 years experience raising 250, 500 million dollar yeah. funds. I wonder if this is because I'm an Asian woman. Um, Do you ever think that? No, I think I think about it more in the sense that our industry uh, needs to change a lot, and there is a lot of power in having a big checkbook, and there are not a lot of people who are really like trying to make the changes that we're trying to make in the industry that have big checkbooks. Um, and you can hire a lot more people. You can participate in different stages of investments. If I miss something at seed, I could participate in the B or the yeah. C or the D if I had a bigger fund. Um, but I also want to generate, I mean, being a f- woman in our industry, it's super important, hopefully, that I'm that we're very successful. It's pretty magnanimous, but if you were and a white bra with that bra <laughs> accent, um, do you think you would have raised twice as much it, with the signaling of a Harvard MBA and an MIT and worked I, uh, at Kleiner? Yeah, I mean, I do. I have to admit, like, I, 
you know, being brought up as a first-generation immigrant and not, like, someone who always felt like you have, and women in general are also, like, all the studies show that men, like, are hired or promoted on the promise and women are hired or promoted on the past. Uh, I, like, that's a mentality that a lot of women have, and if you're, like, if you are hiring immigrants or people who are from non-traditional backgrounds, like, you usually both feel the weight of history of like everyone watching you and wanting to make sure you don't fail because you don't want that to be an example of, oh, well, we tried hiring a woman and that didn't work. Um, or we tried investing in a woman and that wasn't a great outcome. And also just having been brought up for years and years of having to bring it every single day. Uh, so I asked myself that actually, like, yeah, should I be think like, should I kind of let go of that and, uh, and be more aggressive? But I also, I think we're doing a fine job and happy with how things are going. What do you think the next decade looks like? The, the demographics in the country are changing radically, um, and the number of entrepreneurs we're seeing who are not white guys is tremendous now. I'd say two out of three are not white guys. And what, 10 years ago when, we start, when I started doing this and you were, I guess, starting your fund or just about to, what, are, what would it be like? One out of five, one out of 10 would be a non-white dude from an Ivy League school? Uh, you know, it's funny. I have a, a friend who's at business school right now who interned at a, at a fund. And uh, she was, we were catching up, and she was telling me about how shocked she was that um, at the firm they have one of these screens that rotates the pictures of the founders, and it's all dudes. And, um, and all of the founders that they meet with when they're meeting with, for Series ABC are pretty much all dudes. And, uh, and she's at business school where she's part of like women in management, like, you know, business and stuff like that. And it's been such a shock. It was kind of actually useful to be reminded of what it's really like, like out there for, yeah. in a lot of the environments. I think that, um, you know, for a lot of people who are very passionate about seeing the opportunity that tech and venture back companies can create in society and obviously for like kind of changing the trajectory of your family, it's a huge opportunity and we know it has been close to so many people who haven't been given first chances uh, and that we're trying really hard to change that. But we really, I mean, if and when you are going to raise a next round, if you're going to have choices, I hope you'll consider going to foundersforchange.org, which is part of All Raise, where founders have been standing up and saying, I'm a founder for change. I believe in inclusion and diversity for my company, my board, and in the future, if I have, chan if I have choices for whose money I take on my cap table. Uh, because when you all are successful and you're going to make money for whoever you let invest in your company, I hope if you're purposeful about who you invite to work at your company, who you invite to invest in your company, and who you have on your board, you'll be sending a signal to the market, and you'll be helping kind of change our industry with what you do with your company. What do you, yeah, I think it's worth a round of applause, absolutely. Um, what, what do you think of this weird trend I've seen, which... You can time, by the way. We can be a little over. Okay, I've been boss. waiting to get you for an interview <laughs> for a long boss. time, so I can go 10 minutes over if I want. Um, and I think it's really interesting. I'm looking at the audience, and none of them are looking at their screens. They're all looking at you, so that means it's really interesting. They're really just waiting for you to do a little more. No. Nope. You do your bra, I'll do winning, mine. A little more winning. If you ask me in the bra voice, I might. <laughs> but uh, uh, what do you think of this trend where people are hiring female partners to be partners without check writing ability. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed this trend? Like, this is the marketing partner, but yeah. she doesn't make investment decisions. Are you seeing enough women actually being able to write the check? So we are working on that and watching it very closely at All Raise. So at All Raise, um, which is a nonprofit to accelerate success of women in the tech ecosystem, we actually um, just hired a full-time data person who's trying to basically create clean data set, both on the com founder company side and on the VC side to track, because we, like, with all due respect to marketing partners and HR partners who are awesome, and they pr they provide amazing leverage and service to portfolio companies and companies, like, we are very focused on the power dynamics and the economics at funds and making sure that more women and people from non-traditional backgrounds get to the top and are helping call the shots on who how compensation is decided and who gets hired. Um, and we are making some progress, but we also have something called cohorts, which is kind of like somewhere between a lean-in circle and YPO, which is a pilot program at All Raise, where it started with the um, 
I think there were over 30 women that were named partner for the first time, at, like were first time partners at venture firms in 2018. And so we put them into two, co two cohorts of 15 where they meet every four to six weeks and they talk through deal dynamics, partner stuff, compensation stuff, how to handle com difficult conversations, what's happening in portfolio companies, how they can become great board members, and they support each other. So they have a support network of peers that women in this industry have never had before. And we think that, that so because it's not just enough about getting the job, it's about helping make sure that they are successful and they thrive in the job. And I suppose as an activist, and, and you're an activist uh, in, in the best sense of the word, uh, well, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, not only you're an activist, um, you're a pioneer. And I mean that sincerely, like to come into the industry when you did and do what you did and to stay relentlessly positive about it in the face of it maybe not being a positive experience at all times and power through and set that example and take it so seriously that your funds succeed and that you succeed because you know what it means to other people. I, I think it's, it's very significant and I think as an activist I wonder you have, to, you have to strike a balance between rewarding people for making change while still getting the change that you know in your heart has to occur. It's not enough that they have women on the team page, but that is a big step, yeah. that it's not all white dudes. And now you gotta get that next step, right? How do you balance those yeah. two things of keeping it positive and not beating people up for making some change, even though they kind of still got to make more change. Well, I think, um, thank you, by the way. Um, it's a movement, right? Like this is not going, the, everyone in this room can play a positive part in being an example to other industries of how we change the venture-backed ecosystem or industry, how we change companies, how we change cultures, how we change how people are hired, how they're evaluated, how they're coached or sponsored, um, how people communicate with each other. Like everybody here can do it and we can, it can't be on the shoulders of women to change it. Um, it can't be on the shoulders of a small group of women. It has to be a movement. Um, if you think about some of the social movements or the social change that's happened in, in society, um, it, like, for example, maybe the change in, in the attitudes toward gay marriage, right? Like, it's, it was just this mass acceptance and support for something that just is the right thing to do, and it makes a ton of sense. And, and I think in tech, that's what we have to do. And a lot of industries, it's funny, like, after we started All Raise, uh, we became kind of partners with Time's Up, which is an also a, a fantastic nonprofit organization, and there's Times Up Entertainment and Times Up Medicine and Healthcare, and there's Times Up Advertising, and we've met some of those, the founders of those organizations, and they've told us they're looking to us to build a playbook to show their industries that it can be done. It is interesting. People, ex I think part of the reason, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that people expect tech to be better. Because yeah. we're supposed to be pioneers and yeah. changing the, they expect us to change the world. So it's very disappointing to the world when we are so far behind on such a basic issue. And then you look at corporate America kowtowing with the NBA and everything else with China and human rights or our industry accepting money from Saudi Arabia where gay people are beheaded for being gay and women are caned for driving. I was very uncomfortable with Saudi Arabia's having, and I would never take money from a Saudi fund. Um, and I was very disappointed actually when Uber did it. I but also, I mean, Jason, it must have been very personally hard for you, I think, when you see some of your portfolio companies going that way, too. I mean, it's, 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 we don't have control of those issues, those decisions. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, I mean, when you don't have choices, sometimes you have to make choices that you don't like, but we try really hard to make sure yeah. our portfolio companies have choices. And I also think portfolio, like, folks that we work with generally are kind of self-selecting into working with Cowboy Ventures. Yeah. Because um, they want to make those changes or they want to be that kind of company. All right. Uh, give it up one time oh. for Thank a pioneer. Thank you so much and an activist and an amazing investor. Thank you.